Hello and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technology Director here at Bayside. This week we can discuss with Pastor Dave, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We hope you enjoy our conversation today. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This week we are with Pastor Dave, and we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, discussing what elders must be. As we usually do, we're going to start with a couple questions from the congregation, uh, but this time I want to save a few more questions that directly relate to the discussion points for the week. Uh, And before we get too far into it, I want to remind people how to submit a question There are two ways. On Sunday mornings, if you're in your sermon notes, if you scroll to the bottom of the sermon notes in the app, there's a link there. But recently, we have also added in the landing page of the Bayside app, if you scroll about two-thirds of the way down, there's a, a separate link that says Submit Sermon Question. Click that link, fill out the information and your question there, and send that in to us, and we'd be happy to discuss those things. All right, so let's get to one of the first questions. One detail uh, that was not mentioned in the sermon was how Bayside functions with the length of term for elders. So our elders are elected for a three-year term, which can be renewed after the first term. But then after uh, two terms, elders are required to take a year sabbatical. It's not that they quit being elders. They're just not actively uh, serving. Uh, At at least they're not attending elder meetings. (laughs) Most elders, even in their sabbatical year, are still serving somewhere, uh, teaching a class or being involved in various ministries. Uh, But they're just not actively required to, uh, to attend elder meetings during that year. Uh, very almost often, almost always, uh, after a sabbatical year, elders are invited to come back and serve again. Um, the way we look at it here is that once you're an elder, you're always an elder, whether you're actively serving as an elder at the time or not. Um, and so uh, we've got, in addition to the the nine elders that are currently serving, there are four or five other men in the church who have served as elders in the past. And and uh, we, we would still regard them having that kind of standing. Another question was about the process of removing or correcting an elder if they are no longer fit to serve. Right. So the, quali- the, the Constitution spells out very clearly a ways, ways that an elder can be removed, uh, whether it's for a doctrinal error. Uh, it could be because of uh, failure to fulfill the responsibilities of an elder, or it could be uh, disqualification based on something they've done that, that uh, they no longer fit the qualifications of eldership. Um, and it basically uh, just requires a, a vote of the elders uh, to discipline uh, an elder, to remove them from office. Um, I suppose if if there was somebody in the congregation that had an issue with an elder, that they could bring that to the attention of one of the pastors or the other elders uh, for them to hear and, if appropriate, investigate um, and substantiate whether whether the charges are true. And finally, the Apostle Paul is a good example of this. Before his conversion life as Saul, 
he had a not so good view from from people in the church. So if someone having a, a severe conversion where their reputation before that was awful in the community, but through that transforming power of Christ has become very different, yet memories from the community are long persistent, would Bayside still see this person as uh, not meeting the qualifications? Because having a good standing in the community is, is one of those qualifications listed in Timothy. Yeah, a good reputation with outsiders uh, is the last of the qualities that's listed there. Uh, and the answer to, to that is that we we do have on our elder team some men who became believers later in life um, who had pre, pre-Christian histories of addiction, uh, who whose children, uh, in some cases, might be estranged uh, because they remember dad when dad was drunk. Um, But again, the the transformation in life has been so dramatic. And over a period of time, again, they're not new believers, but over a period of time, they've demonstrated that they truly are transformed in Christ. Uh, And so, you know, we're not going to be bound by grudges that people might have or or old knowledge uh i think when we when we are asking what's this person's reputation outside the church uh we'd be talking mainly about uh you know people who have current knowledge of of that individual and certainly with the elders in our church who had had you know significant difficult pre-christian histories um you know, if you ask people who know them now in the community, a lot of times what you hear is, well, he used to be this way, but wow, he's a different guy today. And and that we would take as an indication of, uh, yeah, no, uh, that person has a good reputation in the community and, de- and obviously is demonstrating the transformed life that they now have in Christ. That those life experiences they're using to help others exactly. and, yeah. and, and lead through those difficulties. Exactly. Okay. All right, let's get to our discussion points. Having instructed women in chapter 2 that they are not to teach or exercise authority over men when the church is gathered, Paul goes on to give the qualifications of the men who should teach and exercise authority. In chapter 3, he refers to them as overseers, but other places they are called elders or pastors. So you kind of gave a reference to this on Sunday morning. Talk about some of those differences and and how they each apply. Yeah, so you have this list of qualifications for overseer in 1 Timothy 3. You have a very similar and and mostly overlapping list in Titus chapter 1, but there uh, Paul uses it to talk about, you know, the elders you appoint should have these qualities. Um, in, In 1 Peter 5, he talks about, uh, the shepherds uh, who are over you, and he and he calls them elders, and the work of shepherding they do. So there are three basically interchangeable words that are used to describe uh, the uh, the highest level of church leadership: overseer, which has to do with those who oversee the work or manage the work of the church. Uh, you have elder, which has to do with the spiritual maturity that's required to exercise that office. And then you have the word pastor, which simply means shepherd, which again is descriptive of the work they're to do, caring for 
uh, feeding, leading, and protecting uh, the sheep, uh, the flock of God. So uh, three interchangeable terms. Uh, interestingly, different denominations have camped out on those different terms. So, so uh, the word for overseer is episkopos, uh, and, um, and the Episcopalians claim that. And so uh, they have an Episcopal form of leadership, and they, they say, no, the top tier is not the local church pastor or elder, but is the uh, bishop. So they have bishops. Uh, and then you have the Presbyterians who latch on to the, the word presbyteros, um, which is the word for elder. And they have a Presbyterian form of government, which means that the local church is governed by, by local elders. And that's basically the, the kind of governance that we follow at Bayside. Uh, we're an elder-led, elder-governed church. Um, and uh, so that's... That's why the, the elders, the overseers, the pastors need to be chosen so carefully. Question two. You broke the qualifications into three groups. There were 15 qualifications. And questions two, three, and four talk about the breakdown mm-hmm. of those three groups. And before we get into to those separate groups, there was a question about some, some people that were keeping track of, of the numbers here, that there were seven virtues four things to avoid, and three tests, which math says that's only 14. So can you give us clarification on that 15th point? Sure. Uh, Let's start with the seven uh, virtues. Uh, So in verse 2, he's got seven virtues, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And then I said that uh, in verse 3, he says, okay, now here are four excesses that an elder must avoid. Uh, so the first one was not a drunkard. The second was not violent, but gentle. So it's that contrast that gives you the 15th. Uh, you kind of sneak, sneak a positive one in there among the negative ones. So uh, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. So there's the four uh, excesses to be avoided with with one other virtue that gets snuck in there, gentleness. And then um, three tests he must pass. Uh, Is his family life healthy? Is he a new believer? Uh, And does he have a good reputation outside the church? So going back to the virtues, you ask in question two the importance of these uh, virtues in a leadership and and so for us, uh, you know, we don't know all the eldership by heart. Not everybody can. Hopefully everybody knows at least one of the elders. So help us as we, we look at these uh, virtues, uh, the importance here. Yeah, so the, the virtues that an elder must possess are, are really not exceptional in that all believers in various places are encouraged to uh, emulate these virtues, to have these virtues. It's just that an elder should exemplify them. Uh, so if, if there's something that all believers should aspire to, there's something you should be able to see uh, in an elder because they're setting the pace. They're, they're uh, leading by example. Um, above reproach, you know, uh, you, you don't want somebody who's uh, able to be accused of bad behavior uh, husband of one wife, you want somebody who's 
who's setting a good example in, in marriage. Uh, they're they're uh, loyal uh, to their wives. Uh, they're committed to the marriages, um, not flirtatious or or adulterous, but they're they're setting a good example of of what a husband should be in a Christian marriage. Uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. That all speaks to uh, wisdom and the kind of wise and, and well-controlled uh, life that an elder leads, uh, clear-headed, uh, not given to extremes, um, sensible, well-behaved, and hospitable, uh, lover, literally lovers, strangers, and, um, you know, especially important in the first century when when Christians traveling from place to place relied on the hospitality of other believers. And again, that's something that church leaders should set an example in. And then able to teach, which is, is so critically important because, um, you know, not only are elders responsible to feed the flock by, by declaring God's word, but they're also responsible to protect the flock, which uh, means that they guard against doctrinal error. And so they, they must be uh, individuals who are well instructed in the scriptures and are able to instruct others from them. Question three was dealing with the four excesses that an elder must avoid. And the, the question is how these excesses get in the way of someone leading a church well. Yeah, well, you, you can well imagine if, if uh, you had an elder who was given to drunkenness, who, who was addicted to uh, alcohol or drugs, um, you, you know, that would make it very difficult for them to, um, to uh, give direction to others if, if their own life is out of control and under the influence of alcohol. Uh, you know, we're, we're to be led by the Spirit, be under the influence of the Spirit, not under the influence of alcohol. And so if a shepherd's always getting drunk or high, uh, he's probably not going to do a good job of caring for the sheep. Uh, feeding the sheep, leading the sheep, protecting the sheep. Uh, not violent, but gentle. Um, so this is not somebody who's a bully, who's given to verbal or physical violence, but somebody who's characterized instead by uh, patience and tenderness. Uh, and I, as I said on Sunday, you know, it's got to be frightening to sheep if their shepherd's always screaming at them and beating them. Um Good shepherds lead their sheep. They don't drive them. And so, um, uh, you know, if, if a shepherd is, is given to violent outbursts or violent behavior, uh, that's, that's not going to go well as far as the sheep are concerned. Uh, not quarrelsome. Um, not, not contentious. If, if a church leader is one of the kind of people who seems like they're always looking for a fight, always looking for an argument, and and um, is unrelenting in their opinions and 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 uh, won't give in until they win the argument. Well, that's not likely to go well either. Uh, you know, you, elders need to be team players, uh, working together to shepherd the flock, to lead the flock, and if there is an outlier among the Shepherds, who's, who's always going the other direction, uh, that's going to be very confusing and divisive where the, the church is concerned. And then, um, not a lover of money. Well, there are all kinds of ways you can get in trouble with money. <laughs> um, 
you, you know, uh, from embezzlement to uh, ostentation. Uh, I talked on Sunday about this Instagram site, Preachers and Sneakers, and and uh, the outrage that this one guy stimulated by simply posting pictures of, of pastors and worship leaders dressed in extravagantly expensive uh, sneakers and, and other attire, uh, and how, um, uh, you know, that kind of excess is, is sort of, well, it is, it's contrary to, I think, what a, a shepherd should be conveying in terms of uh, humility and, and uh, even uh, care for the poor. Um, so, yeah, so these, these four excesses are all things that, that could, uh, um, not only disrupt the life of the church, but could lead people astray. Uh, if by example, uh, you know, a, a shepherd is, is a lover of money. Well, he's likely to lead his people into the love of money. And by the way, you can't, you can't serve both God and money. Um, uh, if you're if you're violent but and not gentle, if you're quarrelsome, uh, if you're a drunkard, well, those those are all things that are destructive behaviors. And if that's the example you're setting for your flock, then it's it's going to be disastrous. Right, and and some of those sound very connected. Yep. When when you are uh, inebriated, your your guard can be down, or you can be led into anger, making poor decisions, leading into being uh, quarrelsome. Being a lover of money is not something that's new to the church. Right. That is something uh, that built St. Peter's Basilica uh, on the on the backs and, and the fears of the people and the, the pastors or the leaders of the church wearing gold and big hats. That's that's nothing new. Yeah. Soren Kierkegaard has a passage in one of his works where he he talks about the state church in Denmark. And he, he kind of describes the bishop e- emerging from, you know, the chancel uh, decked out in these gorgeous gro- robes of crimson uh, and, uh, and all festooned in gold trim. And he's got this uh, miter on his head that has all these expensive jewels. And, and, and Kierkegaard says, and then he has audacity to get in the pulpit and say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And and Kierkegaard says that the strange thing is that the people don't burst out laughing because of the contradiction, you know. So um, yeah, this has been a critique of the of, of church leaders for a very long time. The fourth question, in verses four through seven, you identified the three tests that an elder must pass, and why we think that it's important that the the elder passes each of these tests. Now, one of these tests comes from verse 4, where he must manage his household well, or as the King James Version would put it, one that ruleth well his own house. And some churches that I've had personal experience will include how the man manages his wife as well as his children in regards to verse 4. So where do you believe that we should be drawing the line between normal child disobedience and household being out of control? And how does that relate to how he treats his wife? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily see the wife in verse 4. I think that the way that Paul qualifies the first uh, 
phrase of the, of the passage, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I think it's speaking there primarily of his role as a father. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't load, you know, ruling his wife in there with, with uh, the way he, he uh, leads his children. Um, and, and there's a very specific reason given for that. Now, we're not talking about, as you pointed out, not normal childhood disobedience, but I think we're, we'd be talking about, uh, you know, you know how there, there's some people who just don't have their kids under control. They're just, they're, their kids just run wild. And uh, they're never disciplined, and, and they're disrespectful. And, um, you know, if, if that's what's happening, and dad isn't doing anything about it, then Paul says, hey, you probably want to look for somebody else to be an elder. And the reason why is because he says, uh, if, if a man can't manage his own household well that way, how will he care for God's church? So there's the argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, you're, you're going to you're going to have a bit of an insight into how well this guy is going to do as a leader in the church by how well he leads his family, his children in particular, keeping them uh, under control and disciplined. Um, now, you know, I, I think that what you know, there there are some sects out there. I, I just watched a documentary on a fundamentalist sect where where uh, basically. Uh, dad was encouraged to beat the children until they uh, they they obeyed him um, immediately without hesitation. Um, I think that goes contrary to what this verse is saying. It says, "With all dignity, keeping his children submissive." Uh, that that's to say that dad keeps his dignity, maintains his dignity. Uh, it doesn't lose his cool. Doesn't get out of control. So this is not this is not a license for child abuse, in the name of got to keep my kids under control so I can be leader in the church. Uh, and there you know there are a lot of pastors' kids who grew up with that stigma, of uh, being told that you got to behave because if you don't behave, your dad could lose his job. Um, you know, and that's that's just really shameful for that kind of threat to be held over a child's head. Um, yeah, you know, our kids would sometimes say, oh, you're making me do that because we're the pastor's kids. And Diane would respond and say, no, we're making you do this because you're Dave and Diane's kids. It has nothing to do with your dad's occupation. Uh, and so I, I think it's, I think it's just a matter of, you know, healthy family life. You know, uh, Paul is very clear elsewhere. Um, you know, uh, fathers, uh, you know, don't don't uh, be overly harsh with your children so as to discourage them, uh, but raise them up in the in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, you know, authoritarian parenting, I don't think has any place in this conversation. Parents need to be authoritative, um, but and and you know and loving and nurturing, especially in the things of of God, and I think that's how you get to what verse four is talking about of of a uh, a guy who, with dignity, keeps his children under control or keeps them submissive. Two side points then: if God had not blessed this man and wife with children, does that disqualify? You know, that's a great question, and uh, I I think the answer to that is I don't think that's a disqualifier. Uh, I've I've had 
Uh, we don't have any at, at Bayside presently, but in a previous church, one of the finest elders that we ever had was a, was a godly guy who uh, was never blessed with children. He and his wife were never blessed to have children. Uh, and um, I, I think what you do is you take these qualifications and you say, um, you know, as far, as far as we can judge from, from this individual's uh, family life, from his demeanor, um, even from the way he interacts with children in the church, uh, you know, I think there are other ways we can get at the answer to that question, even if a man doesn't have children. Widowers? Yeah, widowers the same, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the, the husband of one wife thing is, is taken to an extreme by some to say that if somebody has been divorced and remarried, no matter the circumstances, they should never be an elder. Uh, at Bayside, we say, well, you know, for some people, their divorce and then remarriage took place in their pre-Christian days. Um, and, and, uh, and this is a new man in Christ. You know, he's a new creation in Christ. And so what's what's old is, is passed away and what's new has come. And, and uh, we judge by the, the status of uh, the, the, the state of the man's current marriage. Um, so we, we don't say no automatically to divorce people. Now, if somebody, if somebody is recently divorced and the divorce wasn't, you know, in accord with, with, um, uh, you know, biblical allowances for, for divorce and remarriage, then we'd probably take a pass on that person. Um, but divorce is not an automatic disqualifier, nor is uh, being a widower who gets remarried. Uh, now, there, there are some, some corners where they would go so far as to say, it doesn't, doesn't matter. If you've had more than one wife, you're disqualified automatically. And, and I don't think that's the spirit of what, what Paul's talking about there. It's very easy to get into legalism very with these easy. texts. Yeah. 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 All right, our question five is a reflection question. How much difference do you think it makes whether or not a church has qualified leaders? Uh, without naming names, thinking about your experience in churches where the leaders have not been qualified, thinking about your experience about the difference about the churches where the leaders were truly qualified, and for those that have not had much experience with church leadership in general or new to coming to church, we see similar issues in the secular workplace. And it's very much like being on a plane and the airline company fires the pilots mid-flight. Uh, you don't know where you're going. You don't know if you're going to get there safely. The, the people who know what's, what's actually going on are, are no longer present. So it, it's, it's a very scary place to be. Yeah, leadership is, is really critical. And, and uh, I think leadership, good leadership, makes all the difference in the health of an organization and most especially in the health of a church. And that's why Paul is so adamant to say, you know, as you look for overseers, elders, look for these kinds of people. Anybody who's had much experience in church, if you had a, have had a bad experience in church where, you know, there was just a lot of griping or division or confusion about where we're going or disagreements about, you know, how the money's being spent, or yeah, you probably, if you scratch around a little bit, you're going to find that there's, uh, there's a problem with leadership there. Um, and in a church, you're probably going to find leaders who aren't truly qualified. Um, as I said in the sermon, I've been involved in church life all my life, 
Um, and I've seen really bad situations. I've seen really good situations. And the the really bad situations are typically churches that chose their leaders kind of casually, you know. Hey, the bylaws say we've got to have, you know, four new elders this year. Who are we going to get? And the nominating committee sits down in October and November and says, well, uh, you know, this guy's been around a long time or that guy's a good giver. Or, you know, the pastor says, hey, I, I want you to, you know, bring in this guy. He's a friend of mine. And and those are situations where where typically things don't go well. Um, but in the two churches that I've spent most of my my life in ministry, here at Bayside and previously at Grace Point Church in Pennsylvania, uh, where we gave really serious attention to the scriptural qualifications of elder, and um, and, and sometimes took a year or more to vet people and and, and before we were a hundred percent in agreement among the other elders that yeah this is somebody whose name should be brought before the congregation to be affirmed as an elder um, you know the, the the whole spirit the tone of those churches was way different from any other churches I've ever been involved in a uh, high degree of trust in the leadership uh, the leaders proved themselves worthy um, because they are qualified they they act and and look a lot like Jesus and they lead a lot like Jesus and and the church uh, flourishes under under their leadership um, you know here at Bayside we just recently uh, finished working through a book second time we've been through the book as as elders a book by Timothy Whitmer called uh, the Shepherd leader and um, and it just really emphasizes that that metaphor that more than anything else, we're not like a corporate board, although we are called upon to make decisions from time to time the way a board would. But predominantly, we want our elders to see themselves as shepherds, uh, not not uh, executives over the church, but shepherds among the flock. And uh, uh, part of the way that that our our elders fulfill that responsibility is that, well, they're leading small groups and classes themselves, but each of them has four or five small groups or classes that they are to oversee, uh, to be in touch regularly with the group or uh, leader or teacher, and to visit from time to time those groups or classes, uh, to get to know the sheep and, and to be present among them. Uh, our elders are typically, you know, though they're not on the platform very often, uh, they're highly visible among the congregation, mingling with the sheep, and you'll sometimes see them taking somebody aside to pray with them. Or, or uh, you know, just this last week I saw one of our elders uh, talking to a younger man and it looked like he was giving him a word of counsel. And and so, um, uh, you know, t- uh, Peter's very clear. He says, uh, y- you know, that, that as we lead, we're not to lord it over those we lead, but we're to shepherd them. Uh, the way a, a, a shepherd would would uh, care for the sheep, leading the sheep, feeding the sheep, uh, protecting the sheep, caring for the sheep, and uh, I think we're we're really blessed at Bayside to have elders who who really do those things. The sixth point this week was how do you think we should pray for our leaders at Bayside, and 
one of the big things that we need to be praying over is the search for an eventual transition to new leadership in the lead pastoral role. Uh, right now, Pastor Ken and his family are going through a very thorough vetting process. And uh, as I as I was typing it out, you can't spell thorough without spelling rough. Uh, any specific prayers that the congregation should be bringing before the Lord? Well, I think uh, the search committee has been doing a, a really, really terrific job and spending a lot of time in prayer and and uh, conversations. And, um, you know, I, I think that just just pray that as this process moves forward, that that God will continue to give really clear discernment. Eventually, the search committee will make a recommendation uh, to the elders. The elders need discernment for that that process. Uh, you know, selecting the next lead pastor for the church is one of the most important decisions an elder board will ever make. Uh, and 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 then a recommendation would come before the congregation, and the congregation will have an opportunity to to um, to spend with the candidate in different different uh, contexts and formats and and uh, and then eventually we'll be asking the congregation to a vote to affirm a new pastor and so yeah the, this is this is a very important time for us as a church to keep cognizant of the qualifications of of elder pastor overseer uh, because uh, we we certainly want to make sure that our next uh, lead pastor, lead shepherd, is is uh, going to be qualified in every respect. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That concludes our time for today. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for joining us. Uh, next week, we are finishing Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Pastor Ken will be discussing the role of deacons. Yep. It's uh, it commonly, you know, might not be understood at Bayside that we have deacons and deaconesses, but we do. Uh, it's just that we don't have a deacon board as some churches traditionally have had but we do have people serving in the role of deacon and deaconess and Ken's going to explain all that this week sounds great, looking forward to it alright, thank you very much Pastor Dave, we hope you all enjoyed our conversation today and have a blessed week